Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome to Hold Your Fire, a new edition of our podcast. I'm Rob Malley. And again, delighted to have him as my co-host today, Richard Atwood, our Chief of Policy. Richard, welcome to the show again. Great to be here again. So the main topic of uh, the episode today, it's, uh, we'll be talking to Phil Gordon, uh, who's the author of a new book, Losing the Long Game, The False Promise of Regime Change in the Middle East. And we'll be having a conversation about the U.S. track record of trying to change regimes in that region. But before we do that, Richard, I wanted to come back to an issue we discussed last week, which is Ethiopia. Um, last week, we were warning at Crisis Group, and you and I were warning about the possibility of a deadly assault by Ethiopian federal forces on the Tigrayan capital of uh, Mekele. Last Friday, we issued a statement warning against the potential uh, huge humanitarian consequences. It appeared the next day that the federal troops actually succeeded in taking over Mekele very quickly. We don't know what the toll was, but certainly it seemed to be less deadly than some of us feared. Does that change your view at all about our judgment about what happened and our assessment of the situation? I mean, look, as, as you say, on Friday, we, we warned about this potential for major violence if Ethiopian federal forces went into uh, Mikeli, the Tigrayan capital. And, and in fact, as you say, it seems that the TPLF, the Tigrayan rebel forces, withdrew claiming that they wanted to avoid endangering civilian lives. Now, there's a media blackout still. There's not a lot of information coming out of what, uh, on what's happening on the ground. So a lot is still unclear. But I think we have to acknowledge, as you imply, uh, we have to recognize that federal forces have had it much easier than we and than many others an uh, anticipated. Uh, now, maybe there's some reports that Eritreas were involved, but overall, uh, Ethiopian divisions seem to have been more effective than many expected in pushing back TPLF forces. Now, of course, it's early days. The TPLF may morph into an insurgency, sort of with echoes of the 1980s when the Derg controlled urban centres, TPLF commanded the countryside. Traditionally, the TPLF has had deep roots in Tigray society. I think it's far from clear that Tigrayans will abandon the TPLF leadership and welcome de facto rule from Addis. There's uh, a lot of stories about Amhara capturing back disputed land from Tigrayans, which will further or is likely to further anger Tigrayans. So I think, you know, although the fighting or the capture of Michele, at least, has not been, it seems, as bloody as we anticipated. You know, I think our core point that the dispute between Addis and Tigray has to be resolved politically, I think that still stands now, what role for Tigray, for TPLF leaders? I think that's a question. Uh, but still, I think Prime Minister Abbey will need some sort of settlement that Tigrayans can buy into or at least live with. Now, I think there's another argument, which you, you sort of you, you imply, and I think which is also fair to ask, which is that 
You know, should we have recognized that the offensive was going ahead anyway? Should we have kept our powder dry? Should we have tried to influence Abby behind the scenes? And I think, again, as we spoke about last week, I think it's quite difficult for an organization like Crisis Group, when forces are moving towards a heavily populated area, for us not to warn of the dangers. I mean, it's very rare that that sort of fighting doesn't take a heavy toll on civilians. And I think, you know, you look back to how we positioned ourselves uh, in the counter-ISIS campaign, you know, where we recognized that the assault on Mosul was, was necessary, that it was going to happen. But even there, we said that, you know, we warned about the terrible destruction it might wreak on the city. We called on all sides on, on the, the coalition to respect international humanitarian law. So I think, you know, it, it, is, it is difficult for us not to issue that type of warning. And I think maybe the, the one thing that I'd add, which I think is important, is that thanks to the Africa team, thanks to our Africa team, we've been quite a prominent voice on Ethiopia's transition you know, since uh, for the past two years. And we've generally been very supportive of Prime Minister Abiy. I think we've recognised the promise of the transition while also recognising some of the dangers in it. And we've tried to offer ideas to, to sort of keep the promise alive in as constructive a way as possible. And I think that's important context for our position also on the on the Tigray crisis. Now, Rob, you may want to talk about Ethiopia more, but I, I actually wanted to ask you about something else. I want to say one word more on Ethiopia then. I know the other things have happened this week, but I do think, I mean, what part of this podcast for me... What I want to offer to those who listen to us is sort of the behind the scenes in the kitchen of, of, of thinking about conflicts and how crisis group, but also how governments think about. It. And that's what we'll be talking to Phil about in a few minutes. But with regards to crisis group, Ethiopia has been a topic that you and I and our whole team and our board have discussed for some time with a lot of disagreements sometimes. But I do think that we're trying to be faithful to our mandate, which is to protect civilian lives to prevent and resolve deadly conflict, it does mean that we will err on the side sometimes of being maybe more more cautious and saying, you know, it may turn out well, but if it doesn't turn out well, in the short, it could be catastrophic. And even if it turns out well, a military operation could have long-term consequences. But, you know, we think about these things long and hard. It's not as if we reflexively oppose uh, every military action, but we do put a pretty high burden of proof on those who are advocates of military action, particularly in a case, as you said, like this, highly populated urban area with a political conflict that's going to have to be resolved. But it's something over which we uh, we do agonize. And if our cause is sometimes viewed as being um, overly alarmist, and it is part of our nature to do everything we can to try to prevent the civilian loss of life. So I wanted to ask you about something else that had happened this week, the killing of the high-ranking Iranian uh, nuclear scientist, what do you make of that? But I think sort of broadly speaking, what do you make of the argument that the new administration, the Biden administration, should sort of not go straight back to the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and should use some of you know what people describe as leverage that the Trump administration has built up through sanctions to push for something more, something on missiles, something on weapons control, something on Iran's role in the region, that the world has moved on since 2015, the region's changed and that the new team should be more ambitious than just going back to the to the nuclear deal. Yeah, well, first, what I make of it is, as again, we have to, we've discussed on this podcast, the next now 50 days, the, the, the waning days of the Trump administration is going to be the days of living dangerously, because there's going to be a lot that the administration and some of its allies are going to try to fit into this period to get away with uh, knowing that the Trump administration not only won't oppose their actions, but will acquiesce and maybe even encourage them. And so I think Iran and I've been saying this again on this podcast for many weeks, is the area I am most concerned about, where you have a convergence of views in Washington and Israel and, and some in the region to do everything they can before uh, Joe Biden uh, takes office, precisely because they fear that he's going to come in and rejoin the JCPOA. Which brings me to, to, to your second question. Does this, is there an argument? And uh, there was a column written this this week by Tom Friedman in the New York Times where he makes the argument you just mentioned, which is we are seeing there's all this leverage, there's all this pressure on Iran, and why not use this leverage and this pressure to force Iran, when, when it is weaker, to make concessions on the issue that seems to be preoccupying the region more, which is its precision ballistic missile program. To which I would say... The Trump administration has tried this leverage strategy now for its full term and most intensely over uh, the last year and, and a bit more. And Iran has not given in. In fact, Iran has accelerated its nuclear program and has engaged in more regional behavior, aggressive behavior in some instances. So to think that the Biden administration would come in and say, oh, by the way, we'll only lift the sanctions that 
we promise to lift in exchange for your nuclear constraints. If you now add on to everything you're going to do on the nuclear side, dealing with your missile program, at a time when Iran feels particularly vulnerable because of all these attacks and it's, it views its missile program rightly or wrongly as its primary means of defense, that seems to me to be engaging in completely illusory thinking. So I mean, I've argued, and against crisis group has, has argued, a future administration should rejoin the deal Iran should come back into compliance and then talk about these other issues because I think we've learned over the last four years that if you don't deal with these other issues, it's going to be very hard to sustain the deal. And by the way, Iran also has many complaints with with a nuclear deal and it too will put things on the table. But to think that we're going to go now and try to, that, that the US and others are going to try to negotiate a bigger deal, what it means is that for the first six months or a year or more of the Biden administration, they're going to be faced with an Iran that's going to accelerate its nuclear program and engage in more regional destabilizing behavior. Of that, I'm convinced. So maybe let me ask one follow-up. So let's say then that that the new administration follows our advice, goes back to the Iran deal, assuming that Iran is open to that. Given your experience in the Obama administration with the JCPOA in the first place, how could a Biden administration go back to the deal without fueling the insecurity in Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, other countries that was so problematic last time? Uh, How can it do that while keeping some traditional US allies in the region on board? All the while, we hope, pushing the Saudis on Yemen, ideally changing tack in in Israel. Very, very tough question. I think it's going to be a a real balancing act. Uh, I'll I'll be very brief. Uh, We should come back and talk about this. You know, I do think that the US should go back into the deal. I, it, it will worry Saudi Arabia, Israel, and others. And the U.S. is going to have to try to, to reassure them by saying that it will negotiate a follow-on deal. And in that follow-on deal, try, will will coordinate closely with, with its, its partners. But I would not suggest that the Biden administration should, in order to reassure, give either of these countries things that they want that go against what I would consider to be U.S. interests. Because remember, that's what happened under the Obama administration. One of the reasons the Obama administration became complicit in the Yemen war was in order to, quote unquote, reassure Saudi Arabia at a time where it was worried about the deal, the negotiations with Iran by saying, yes, we're going to stand by you. And five years later um, or more, the cost far exceeds what anyone might have imagined at the time. And so reassurance should not become a synonym for acquiescing in policies that are either overly costly in terms of their humanitarian impact overly costly in terms of U.S. interests in the region. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So now let's turn to the the main part of the podcast, which I'm really excited to have as our guest, uh, Phil Gordon. Phil, good to have you. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. So just a few words about Phil, for those who don't know him. He was Special Assistant to President Obama and White House Coordinator for the Middle East. He also served as Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs under President Obama. Two things, most importantly for today's podcast, he's the author of a new book um, called Losing the Long Game, The False Promise of Regime Change in the Middle East. That's what we're going to be talking about. But also need to say that he's a very close friend, somebody, somebody I've worked with and, and admire, also a tennis partner and a confession he always wins. But with that, let's plunge right into the, right into the book a book that I'm very happy to hear was uh, selected as one of the best books of the year by the Financial Times. Um, And I'll start with something you say at the very beginning of the book, which I had not thought of, but really sets the stage. You write, since the end of of World War II, the United States has set out to oust governments in the Middle East on average of once per decade, which is quite a remarkable statement. Um, And we're now talking, of course, as we have you on this podcast talk about, you know, what Trump administration is doing with Iran, it may be too late for them to initiate a regime change. But maybe you could sum up your argument for our listeners uh, in a few words, and then we'll we'll try to dig more deeply into some of the issues you raise. Um, sure. Thanks, Rob. I mean, I'd sum it up in the briefest of terms by simply saying that the argument is that regime change in the Middle East, which is when the United States sets out as a matter of policy to get rid of a government it doesn't like and transform the political system, tends to turn out badly. That is to say that we fail to meet our ultimate objectives. The costs invariably are much higher than advocates anticipate, and there are always a range of unintended consequences. And so that's what the book is, is a look back. As you say, this is not a, an altogether rare occurrence. We've done it fairly regularly over the past 70 years. 
And what the track record shows is that there are repeated patterns in which we just continually tend to overstate what we can accomplish, uh, underestimate the costs and repercussions, and find ourselves in a situation that uh, often we regret. And just so we're clear what we're talking about here, because you mentioned, you know, we've done this around once a decade. I look at the 1953 CIA-backed coup in Iran, uh, two interventions in Afghanistan, support for the Mujahideen against the Soviet-backed government, and then, of course, the overthrow of the Taliban after 9-11. And then there's the classic case of the Iraq War 2003. And then, you know, for you, Rob, and I'm sure you want to talk about these, uh, interventions under President Obama, whom we served, where in Egypt, Libya, and Syria, we also set out to change governments and transform political systems. So, Phil, maybe I can come in. I should say, like Rob, I love the book. I really thought it was a great, a very compelling read. And you know, as, as Rob said as well, I'd, I'd really recommend it to people. I thought we'd start in Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, so not to go too far back, but look at some of the post 9-11 stuff. And in Afghanistan, the argument, you can correct me if this is wrong, but the argument is it seems a little bit different to some of the other cases and that you argue it was necessary to, to topple the Taliban was just after the 9-11 attacks. Mullah Omar, the Taliban leader, refused to hand over bin Laden. But you argue the US shouldn't embarked on the sort of big nation-building project that it embarked on in Afghanistan. So, you know, I think first you can, and some people do debate, how much nation-building the US did in the first few years in Afghanistan. But even leaving that aside, let's say the US had had a lighter footprint. Wouldn't some of the other problems you identify with regime change in other cases, so the security vacuum, the competition for power, the ethnic rivalries, especially after the U.S. had just pumped a lot of weapons into many of the same guys that were fighting in the 90s, wouldn't have they, those same problems reemerged? And I, I guess the question, I'm not sure I agree with this, and obviously this wasn't the mood back in 2001, but isn't the more natural conclusion by your own logic in the book that the U.S. should have found another way to get at bin Laden without toppling the Taliban? Yeah, so thanks, Richard. There's hugely important things in there. Let me say two things. One is because you began by saying Afghanistan is different from the other cases. I want to stress that all along here. They're all different. And that's one of the interesting things about this is that we have done this for very different reasons in different places. Afghanistan was clearly counterterrorism, right? 9-11, United States attacked. That was the main reason. Other cases, the priority is weapons of mass destruction or prior to that, you know, Cold War competition and later in some of the Obama interventions, saving lives. And sometimes it's promoting democracy. So let's just stipulate these are all different cases. And I also want to reinforce the argument that we do it in very different ways, sometimes invading and occupying, sometimes invading and not occupying. In one case was a, a, a CIA backed coup. In other cases, we just support the opposition. And I think you'll see why that's important in all of these cases, because the pattern is no matter why we do it and no matter how we do it, the patterns and outcomes are similar. Just wanted to get that on the table. As for your specific question, what's fascinating about the 2001 case in Afghanistan is you say I concede that there really wasn't a choice. We had to get rid of the Taliban after 9-11 and the real problem comes later. I do conclude that because still today, I can't really imagine the situation or the scenario in which uh, the United States is directly attacked on 9-11 and the Taliban doesn't really act to get rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and the U.S. government decides to leave it in power. If you remember, at the time, there was overwhelming support for getting rid of the Taliban. The Senate, I think, voted 98 to 0 for the authorization of military force. In the House, it was like 320 to uh, one. So a single member of Congress was against. So that's why I kind of say it's unrealistic to imagine that we just wouldn't have done it, even though there was a debate at the time. And, and I think the Bush administration gave the Taliban a chance to throw al-Qaeda under the bus and stay in power, but they refused to do so. Having said that, and this is what I think is really interesting, there was such a consensus to do it at the time but if, as you look at it, and this is what struck me in, in writing about this with 20 years of hindsight, if Americans knew then that the result of this regime change in Afghanistan would be almost 20 years of a military presence, more than 1,000 U.S. Law, lives lost, but many other allied lives and, and wounded and, and uh, um, mentally and physically, and that it would cost a trillion dollars, and that at the end of the 20-year period, 
we would be envisaging a situation where we were about to withdraw anyway and the Taliban could come back to power, then I don't think it would have been such a no-brainer. So I put that, that out there for this Afghanistan story because I think it's really worth keeping in mind. At the time, it may seem like there's no uh, alternative. And again, politically, I doubt there was. But when you contemplate it in terms of the long-term outcomes, it really raises the question of whether that's the right approach. Yeah, very good. So I, I think maybe we could do a few more specific ones and then we can move to some general points. So we could skip Iraq and, and move forward to, to Egypt. I think the, the debate on sort of the regime change debate, at least, there's lots you can discuss in Iraq, but the regime change debate in Iraq, I think the evidence is pretty compelling that that was a, a, a big mistake. But if we can jump then to the Obama era and Egypt, and again, the argument, as you say, Egypt seems a little bit different. As you say, they're all different. But Egypt, even within them all being different, seems quite a bit different in that it's less a case of sort of regime change in that by the time Obama had called for Hosni Mubarak to step down, you know, in some ways the writing was on the wall. The military had made it clear it was not going to go in and, and uh, deal with protesters. It seemed as though Mubarak's days were numbered. And Maybe to change that would have meant offering open support for Mubarak. Maybe he's even signaling to the military that they should get in line behind him. Maybe even in some ways giving a green light for them, even if implicit, to crush protests. So in that sense, it wasn't really a, a regime change as so much as a reluctance to prop up an ally who was sort of on his way out. And in some ways, this one I find particularly striking because... This sort of scenario, whether to side with protesters, whether to side with a long-serving leader, often a U.S. ally, you know, for whom the writing is on the wall, this is a challenge that almost certainly the Biden administration is going to have to have to deal with. It's a challenge in some ways that the Trump administration dealt with in Sudan. Obviously, um, Bashir was not a U.S. ally, but still Trump administration had to decide how to position itself with the revolution in, Su in Sudan. So how do you navigate as, as a U.S. administration this decision about when to signal that a long-serving leader needs to go quietly, when to sort of allow, if anything, sort of regime change by omission rather than by commission? Yeah, great. Um, first, you rightly said this is even more different from the others. I, I think if you had to you know, give someone a task of circling which episode is the most different of all of them, it would be Egypt. And you could almost argue, and I debated myself, does this even fit? Does it count as, uh, as regime change? And certainly, you know, Obama weighing in diplomatically in Egypt is not even the same category as invading and occupying Iraq. And yet, you know, so why, why consider it uh, regime change? Because the United States did have a policy choice. And you're right that the process was already well underway before Obama intervened diplomatically, and that the Egyptian military itself had decided it was time for, for Mubarak to go. And there, too, I want to stress, ultimately, the Egyptians decided that Mubarak had to go more than the United States did. One of my conclusions on Egypt is just how limited agency we had for all of the debates about whether we did the right thing and what we should have done. That's, to me, not the biggest variable. I mean, the Egyptians did this. And so, you know, some accused Obama of throwing Mubarak under the bus. Uh, some accused him of not acting vigorously enough to do that, the truth is we probably weren't the most important factor. And yet the reason I even include it in this discussion is we did make a policy decision. Um, when, uh, you know, the United States was leaning on Mubarak to promote a transition, he gave that speech on February 1st, 2011. It just didn't go far enough. And Obama called him, uh, expressed his disappointment, and then went out and issued a statement that called on him to leave. That was a policy choice. Uh, we didn't have to do that. As I relate in the book, um, there were many advisors of the president, including most of the more senior ones at the table in the Situation Room, advising him not to do that. Orderly transition, longstanding ally, uh, we shouldn't get on, on the side of, of promoting such potential radical change. And here I'll just end with this because I think it answers your good question about U.S. foreign policy in general is when do you signal that you want to see change, well, one answer to that is you don't do it if you fear that the consequences would be worse than sticking with the ally in the first place. And that's what a lot of Obama's more senior advisors thought, that if we helped push him out, there would be a vacuum. And the only democratic alternative to that vacuum would be the Muslim Brotherhood, and you would get even more tensions in the country. And with hindsight, do you think that a different U.S. position would have led to a more ordered, orderly transition? Or do you think by that time it was, it was unlikely to have made much difference? We'll never know. But I think you can at least make the argument that it might have. And if you make that argument, as I do, 
on your side is what happened instead of that, right? So we did give up on Mubarak. Obama did help push him out. You know, the press secretary, uh, Robert Gibbs, the next day said now means now, right? Uh, or yesterday, sorry. When Obama said there needs to be a transition now, Gibbs said that means yesterday. And we made clear he had to go. And then within 10 days, he did. Well, the result of that, you know, you can blame us for having managed the aftermath, but, you know, the situation is what it is. Mubarak left. Uh, they weren't able to really promote an orderly transition. They had elections that, as anticipated by Obama's senior advisors, including Secretary of State Clinton, the Muslim Brotherhood won. We then supported that government and tried to bring about to support this democracy, found ourselves facing deep hostility in Egypt, including among the military and some of Egypt's traditional allies in the region, and then weren't able to prevent those hostile to that Muslim Brotherhood government whose advent we had predicted, or Secretary Clinton, Gates, and others had predicted, from taking power militarily in, uh, in the summer of 2013, and then imposing a military regime that's even more repressive than the Mubarak one that we pushed out. So if you just look at what happened it is easier to argue, well, maybe we should have given the orderly transition more of a, a chance because that certainly didn't work. So then after Egypt was Libya, of course, and you have this fascinating, really, and they're all fascinating, but it's really fascinating account of some of the decision making behind some of the decisions in Libya. And there's a lot, again, a lot you could uh, could ask. But much of the argument in hindsight or in retrospect has focused on less the intervention to save civilians in Benghazi, but more the use of the Security Council mandate in many people's eyes to then go further than that, back rebels and oust Gaddafi, obviously with these huge consequences for Libya, almost a decade of chaos that Libyans have been living through, but also consequences for the Security Council itself and contributing to some of its, some of its irrelevance and difficulties in, in Syria. So I guess the question, one question that flows from that is, do you think there would have been a way for... US, France, UK, to have intervened to stop what people thought was going to happen in Benghazi, and maybe there's some questions about that, but to stop what people thought was going to happen in Benghazi without then going on to oust Gaddafi? Yeah, it would have been difficult. But again, when you look at the way things did play out, it starts to look better as a policy option in retrospect than it felt at the time. And at the time, I think we were all guilty of what I frankly accuse repeated US administrations of being guilty of, which is wishful thinking for the approach that we did follow. When you mentioned the Security Council resolution, you know, that raises this question that people have asked here too, just as about Egypt, is this really regime change? Because of course, our formal policy was not regime change. Indeed, we went and got a Security Council resolution that was to protect civilians, you know, nothing more and nothing less. And we said very clearly that that's what we were doing. And we Forswore. Our official line was that we were not pursuing uh, regime change. And as a senior U.S. official, I joined in the fray and articulated that publicly because technically it was true. That was not the mission. But just below the surface, frankly, it very quickly became the objective. We had, and as I note in the book, there was a sort of syllogism, at least in our minds, which was um, the mission is protecting civilians. But to protect civilians, you have to get rid of Gaddafi. Ergo, the mission is getting rid of Gaddafi. And I think very early on, it became clear that that was the real uh, objective. And it's partly because we thought that would be a better outcome, that we would intervene, the Gaddafi regime would be overthrown, as some of his neighbors had been, some other regional dictators, and things would get better uh, in its wake. I think had we known at the time that instead of this horrible dictator being replaced by democratic, stable Libya, you would get 10 years of further chaos, civil war, intervention from hostile neighbors on opposite sides, space for ISIS, and real questions about Libya's future that might have looked very different at the time. And again, that's you know part of my warning in all of this is not to fall prey to the hope that what will replace these regimes is stability, democracy, and alignment with the United States, but rather compare those policy options to uh, what is actually more likely to happen. So I don't know if if it could have succeeded to just stop him from Benghazi and uh, and not pursue regime change, but it does seem clear that pursuing regime change had real costs and consequences beyond what we imagined. This is Hold Your Fire. 
a podcast from the International Crisis Group. Today we're talking with Phil Gordon. So one more, Phil, one more of the, the case studies before we're going to ask you the bigger questions. What the hell should the U.S. do if this is not the right approach? And that's Syria. Uh, first, of all, I want to say you have this great paraphrase of Tolstoy in which you say every unsuccessful attempt at regime change is unsuccessful in its own way. And I think you're illustrating that uh, right now. But Syria is one of those cases that both you and I struggled with uh, in the Obama administration. And thank you for leaving it to me in the terrible state uh, that it was. Um, but it does raise a question here uh, that critics of what you're arguing would say, it's great to point out everything that went wrong, because it, everything does go wrong, you know, this messed up region, et cetera, et cetera. But in Syria, the criticism would be, how could the United States not have done more to stop what was, you know, half a million people killed, maybe more, half the population displaced, more than that? I mean, a catastrophic outcome that maybe the United States could have prevented by doing much more than it did by intervening militarily and trying to stop this genocidal uh, regime. And I want, want to hear your thoughts about that. I'm sure I'll have a follow-up, but what's your reaction? First, I want to say that you are right to point out, critics of all of this are right to point out, that there are costs of inaction as well as action. And the road not traveled always appears preferable to the road traveled in these cases where all of the options were bad and things don't turn out well. And I try to be, I hope you agree, I try to be fair about that in the book and not just criticize what was done, but but honestly accept that in all of these cases, there were solid grounds for wanting to get rid of the, these regimes. They were, they were terrible regimes. They mistreated their people. They threatened their neighbors. They threatened the United States. So let there be no ambiguity uh, about that. And yet, you also have to be honest that you know, the road traveled or action, if, it, if the costs and consequences of that action outweigh the very unsatisfying resignation to leaving the regime in place, then you can avoid some real damage. Now, in Syria, as you say, we both, you know, banged our head against this unbelievably difficult problem. And you can only look back with regret at the tragic way it turned out, first and foremost, for Syrians. But that doesn't mean, and this is relevant to all of these other cases we look at, that doing more was the answer. And what I take issue with in terms of the critiques on Syria is the notion, and I talk about this throughout the book, the if-only concept. Afterwards, people often look back and say, if only we had done X, Y, or Z. The idea that if only we had given a little bit more support to the opposition or undertaken some airstrikes here or there, we could have brought about this transition and avoided all of this uh, tragedy, I just don't think is the case. If there's a lesson from all of these previous cases, as well as others around the world, we're mostly talking Middle East here, but elsewhere, it's that a little bit more military power or tougher sanctions doesn't necessarily bring about that transition to stability. And I question that in the Syrian case. Um, one of the if only moments, of course, is you know early on, if only President Obama had supported General Petraeus and Secretary Clinton's proposal to provide weapons to the opposition, we could have gotten rid of the regime and, and had a better outcome. I don't think there's much evidence for believing that's the case. And, you know, one reason we know that is later on, of course, we did provide a lot more and the neighbors provided far more support than was ever imagined in that initial proposal. And it and our escalation didn't lead to the capitulation of the regime. It led to counter escalation by the regime, backed by its determined supporters in Russia and Iran. Now, could the United States, if it really set its mind to it, have decided whatever the Russians or Iranians are, are, are going to do, we'll do whatever it takes to overthrow the regime? Sure, we could have. We did that in Iraq and overthrew the Saddam Hussein regime. But would that have led to uh, the stability and peace that we were hoping for? That is much more in question. And by the end, by the time I you know, handed this dossier over to you, Rob, I, I would often say, you know, we were supporting the opposition at that point, once the civil war had escalated to that stage, I could never tell you who would come out on top if we did do more and more and more until the regime fell. But it wasn't going to be the stable, moderate opposition that we wanted to work with. If you look back at Afghanistan, and that was you know, obviously on President Obama's minds and other mind and others at the time. If you look back at cases like that, the most likely outcome of that is competition among those different up armed opposition groups you're supporting. And the most extreme and most violent uh, tend to come out on top. So uh, I'll just 
sum up on that, there is an argument that the United States should have done more. And my response to that is it would have taken much more than most people suggest, the historical record suggests, and we would have then been responsible for the outcome. So where that leaves me uh, is not to defend what was done over a 10-year period, because I think the result of that was to escalate and perpetuate a civil war rather than to bring it to an end. Yeah, which, which, and I want to stay with Syria just a little bit because it is, it is really one of the most painful experiences that at least I've gone through. So you say if the United States had done more, the United States would have been responsible for what comes next. Fair enough. But is there for the main argument the U.S. shouldn't have intervened more because then it, it sort of was morally responsible? But if it had not intervened, if it had done nothing, the situation wouldn't have been any different. I mean, it's conceivable, in fact, that it would have been worse because other countries would have intervened just as much. The regime would have been just as, as repressive. And so is it a matter of sort of keeping the U.S. having clean hands so that it doesn't feel like it, it's responsible or that it actually made things worse? Yeah, no, not at all. I'm glad you give me a chance to clarify that. I don't mean that just in the sense that, well, if we had done that, then we would be held responsible, you know, and people would criticize us. That's, that's not the point. It's that we would have contributed to uh, an even further escalation of the violence, created an even bigger security vacuum in Syria, and been left with a situation analogous to Iraq and Afghanistan, where either we would have to have taken responsibility to try to make the situation better, which would not have been, I think all of this history tells us, possible with a, a light footprint or a few American troops or no American troops, but uh, an indeterminate, possibly indefinite, large military presence, the alternative to which would be pulling out altogether and letting these different parties, backed by their different adversaries, have at it. That's what I mean by responsible. We would have created that sort of situation. Now, you can make the case for that, uh, and you can make the case that given what did transpire, the tragedy for the Syrian people, the civil war, the refugees, the rise in extremism, that it would have been worth it. I think you, would, you, you have to accept, however, that the costs of doing so would be far more than most critics of what were done acknowledge. And so uh, I think given the terrible outcome of what was done, the real alternatives are that one, where you do more and you do whatever it takes to overthrow the regime and then whatever it takes to deal with the aftermath, or less. And on that, Rob, I don't necessarily agree that doing less would have led to the same outcome. I mean, we, we grabbed the bull by the horns and participated in and supported, you know, starting with calling for Assad to go, which was a signal to the, the Syrian rebels and their supporters that the most powerful country in the world was on their side, and we were going to see this through. And by the way, we did that right after we had just intervened militarily with the most powerful alliance in the world in Libya. So if you're deciding whether to violently oppose the Assad regime, you see that the United States and NATO has articulated its backing for you and then started materially participating in it, then you're, like I said, escalating the situation. And unfortunately, that escalation didn't lead to the overthrow of the regime, but counter-escalation by a very determined Russia and Iran. So then I guess very briefly, Phil, the follow-up to that is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, with all the qualifications that that entails, were you to go back in time, you would have recommended option one, in a sense, the, the, the less intervention, not taking a position on whether Assad should go or not, trying to stay, trying to stay out of it as much as possible. Uh, yes, I don't, I don't think it's possible to argue for the middle ground. I think the, the, when you look back, the realistic options are much more, much sooner, and bear the costs and consequences, knowing that they're going to be a lot bigger than I think most critics suggested, uh, or trying to avoid that escalation in the first place, uh, both with your rhetoric in terms of the, our goal that you're articulating and your material uh, actions on the ground, which only contributed, I think, to uh, the problems. Just on this point, because there are probably critics or listeners saying, you know, I'm overstating what it would take, and people often, people always, when they don't want to do anything, paint the enemy as 10 feet tall. But you look back at previous cases, a bit more pressure on Assad. First of all, there's a misunderstanding about what the goal was when people talk about doing more for the opposition to promote a political transition or get Assad to the table. These are euphemisms. We weren't trying to promote a political transition. Assad was not going to share power with his opposition. We we're talking about getting rid of the regime, which meant the end of his power and possibly 
his life. And we need to understand that. Getting into the table, it wasn't a question of being at the table. There actually was a table, but that regime was not going to compromise any more than Saddam Hussein compromised when he was under massive economic sanctions and periodic bombing campaigns. When we did Desert Fox uh, for more than three days in 1998 with hundreds of cruise missiles and massively hitting his weapons capabilities, he didn't compromise or share power. He just dug in further and stayed there until we had to intervene. In Libya, which is far weaker militarily than Syria, we didn't just you know, provide some arms to the opposition or do a bit of airstrikes. We wiped out all of their air defenses. We launched a massive NATO bombing campaign with tens of thousands of sorties. And it took eight months before Gaddafi, he didn't come to the table. He was pulled from a pipe and, and, and killed by the opposition. Do, do Kosovo as well. Uh, in Kosovo, we're getting outside the region, but it's also relevant, launched a massive uh, air campaign, not even to change the regime, but just to drive their security forces out of Kosovo. And that campaign took three months of bombing to get that to happen. So I'm not convinced that, you know, uh, airstrikes over chemical weapons in 2013 or a bit more arms to the opposition would have gotten this done. I think if you're honest, you have to accept that it would have been much more costly taken much longer, and then produced a situation in a vacuum that you wouldn't know what to do with at the end. So, uh, and we're going we're to run out of time and we could go on for, forever, but I'll just tell people, just read the book and you'll get, you'll get the answers. One of the criticisms I've read, and there have been very few uh, critics, and even this was a very favorable review, say, asked one question, you know, particularly if you say that there's been an intervention basically once every decade, the question of motivation comes in. Is it just innocent Americans who decide to do good? Or is there something else afoot, which is why the U.S., perhaps more than any other country, uh, well, more than any other country, decides once a decade we're going to change a regime? Is there an innocent or is there a, a more nefarious explanation? Yeah, no, you're referring to a New York Times review that said the, the main critique of which was that I didn't attribute enough malevolence to U.S. foreign policy. Yes. I, I don't think that's fair because I don't think malevolence is the main a motivator for these interventions. I actually think the opposite. In most of these cases, U.S. administrations, and by the way, you know, very different ones, right? Um, you know, Eisenhower, Carter started the Mujahideen support, and then Reagan, uh, you Bush perpetuated it, and then Bush too, and Obama. These are very different administrations. I think uh, for the most part, they did what they thought were they were doing for U.S. national interests, and in some cases, even local humanitarian interests. That doesn't mean they were always right, and it doesn't mean that they also didn't sometimes, you know, spin it and emphasize certain factors uh, over others for their own purposes. But my critique is much less that all of these different U.S. administrations were malevolent or that they were out for oil or money or corporate interests, but that they were that they were wrong, that analytically they engaged in wishful thinking and failed to anticipate the consequences of their actions. And, you know, I can't speak for any of them, but the one I was obviously most close to is the Obama administration. I don't think Barack Obama helped push out Mubarak or authorized a NATO intervention in Libya or supported the Syrian opposition because he wanted to make money or because big business wanted it or, or for oil. I don't think it was any of those things. I think uh, in Egypt, he wanted to support a democratic transition that seemed to be underway, whether he pushed for it or not. I think in Libya, he genuinely wanted to save lives. Barack Obama, as I write in the book, having been one of his foreign policy advisors prior to 2008, but you, you don't have to be in, that, in those shoes to know this, he hardly came to office eager to intervene in the Middle East, like to flex his muscles or to prioritize that region over others. On the contrary, the opposite was the case. But he felt that uh, the United States had the possibility of saving lives, and it was worth trying. And in Syria, too, you know, that's one of the things, riddles I wanted to answer in the book, having worked for President Obama, was how do you get to the point where this instinctive skeptic of regime change and military intervention in the Middle East ends up doing so? And so Syria, too, he didn't do this to dominate the region, but there are very powerful factors, um, pressure from allies, pressure from the media, pressure from... Congress, and a genuine desire to make a positive difference that led him to do that. So I don't think, uh, I just don't analytically believe that it's true that we've mostly done it for nefarious reasons. Phil, can I ask one more? Uh, and this one, looking ahead, you have in, in a number of different chapters in the book, and I mean, it's really fascinating the way you describe the decision-making process in, in, in the White House. Uh, but what's striking 
looking at the uh, incoming Biden administration is how much uh, Joe Biden himself on one one side, but then Tony Blinken on the other, uh, Joe Biden's future secretary of state, how much they actually disagreed on some of these questions. They found themselves on, whether it was on uh, Egypt, on Libya, and I think also on Syria, on different sides of the argument with Tony Blinken sort of on the more activist side, Joe Biden on the more skeptical of, of what the US should do. So if you were to advise the new administration as it's coming in, you lay out all the dangers of regime change. And of course, things are always going to be different in different countries. They're going to be very different situations, but sort of broad brush, what would you advise the new administration facing some of the dilemmas you know, inevitably they're just going to face same sorts of questions. Broadly speaking, how would you advise them? So two things. I mean, I wouldn't presume to advise, but I'll say two things about that. Uh, one is the fact that Joe Biden and Tony Blinken could be on different sides of some of those issues underscores how hard they are. I mean, I, I tr again, try to be honest in the book. These are tough calls. They're often 51-49. Some cases I'd argue 60-40 or, or, or more. But certainly the ones that the Obama administration uh, deliberated and debated were difficult decisions with pros and cons on both sides. And I think it's to their credit, I think it's to Vice President Biden's credit that he has a top foreign policy advisor who's willing to speak his mind. And it was to President Obama's credit that he facilitated and encouraged such open discussion and debate about such um, hard issues. In terms of advising or thinking about the future, I mean, there is obviously a clear, while acknowledging that future problems are going to be just as hard as these, there is a clear sort of message in what I write and lesson in all of this is sort of the next time U.S. leaders or pundits or others tell you that we've learned the lessons, this time regime change will be, in, will be different, we know how to do it, um, the threat is something we can't tolerate. It'll be better once we do it. Keep in mind these past episodes. That, that's the lesson of all of this because they never err on the side of overstating the costs and understating the threat. It's invariably leans in the other direction. And you know that's the, the psychology takes over. Once you've decided to pursue that goal, you tend to overstate it and oversell it because you need to win public support. And you also oversell it to yourself. And again, you know, Rob and I struggled with a lot of these things. You're trying to make a success of it. You can't go to work every day. This is even more true if you're a military out in the field, but even for policy officials, once you've set yourself on that goal, you want to believe it's going to work or there's just too much cognitive dissonance. So that's all I'd say. You know, there are no simple answers to any of these problems, but I think any it would be healthy for any administration to, to be familiar with this history and understand that, you know, if there's a next time we contemplate getting rid of such a hostile regime for whatever reason, it is almost certainly going to be more difficult, more costly, and with more unintended consequences than it feels like at the time. Phil, I want to thank you. I'm sure you convinced everyone who's listening to us why they should rush and, and buy the book. It's called Losing the Long Game. And I have to say, you know, most of these books by former officials, I'm not a huge fan because I find them often too self-serving, self-promoting, and this one is neither. It's, uh, it's I think, very introspective and very self-critical, critical of policies that you participated in. So thanks for your time. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be watching to see what happens in the next decade. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Richard. Really appreciate it. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So really a fascinating discussion with Phil Gordon. I'm sure some of these issues the podcast will come back to in, in future episodes. Rob, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you, uh, what was your reason to be cheerful? I told you that one of my favorite podcasts was Reasons to be Cheerful with uh, Ed Miliband and, and Jeff Lloyd. And each week they sort of address a major policy issue, but they also ask each other in their personal lives, what reason do they have to be to be happy? And we talk about a lot of gloomy stuff on Crisis Group. So I want to ask you again this week, what is your, your reason to be cheerful? Especially after Thanksgiving in the US, of course. After Thanksgiving, indeed. Well, hmm. COVID-19 has meant has brought really tough times for many people, including at Crisis Group and across the world. But the, the one benefit, uh, I'd say from a very parochial personal point of view, is that it's brought all my kids home. And this week, my daughter came home. So I now have three kids and a puppy. And so my reason for being happy is that our family, our entire family is back. And I didn't think I'd see that again, uh, probably ever. Full house. Yeah, very, very nice. How about you? 
Well, last time I told you about this banana plant that I brought back from Italy and that was uh, <laughs> booming in, in sunny Brussels. And actually, a, a miracle has happened. It's actually now flowering of all, of all things. So that's made me even happier than I was uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, that's my reason to be cheerful. Great to hear. So what else, Rob, is on Crisis Group's radar this week? Yeah, I'm not sure this will make people cheerful, but what we do have is our statement about avoiding a bloodbath in, in Ethiopia, which we just referred to, a commentary on the situation in northeast Syria and how to uh, ensure durable stability, and finally, an illustrated commentary, really one that I recommend about the violence against social workers in, in Colombia. It is, a, it is a, great, a great account, and I think people are going to find it very, very compelling. That's it for this week. Thank you, Richard. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Phil Gordon for having joined us. Uh, and a reminder, if you have any questions, please send them to media at crisisgroup.org. Please leave a rating or review on iTunes. And thank you once more to our great Crisis Group team for putting this podcast together. Have a great week. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.